afternoon. Everybody was good. Thank you that you can be here with us. Um, we're looking at Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, and he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress, dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Okay, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this text. Father, we thank you that we can gather together once again and sit under the teaching of your word to worship you, to commit this Lord's Day to you. I pray that no matter what our worship's surrounding situation is, that within our hearts there would be a heart of worship, a heart that focuses on our loving Savior that desires to draw closer to you, trusting that in the strength that you provide through your word and through the ministry, of worshiping together like this, that you would empower us to love you, to serve you, to be faithful, that you would provide the strength that we need to live for you in this upcoming week. So be here with us in this remaining worship hour. Speak to our hearts. We depend on you. We appeal to your merciful nature, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Okay, so this passage that we just read um, always confused me because, okay, so the title of the sermon is Forgiveness, Faith, Service. Forgiveness, Faith, Service. And so if you read it initially, it seems like three um, different topics randomly placed together. It seems like there's no connection, just three different topics about uh, sin, you know, if you have the some Bibles that might have the subheading sin, faith, and duty. Um, so three unrelated topics that are just kind of put together. That's what it kind of seems like. Um, and we're calling this title Forgiveness, Faith, Service. Um, but even though it seems like that, I think Luke is very intentional in how, why this is here placed like this. And I think there is a thread that connects these 
three topics, this teaching together, and so we're going to try to thread it through our study together. Okay, so the title is Forgiveness Faith Service. The three points are forgive like God. Secondly, believe in the greatness of God. And then thirdly, serve for the glory of God. Okay, so first, forgive like God. Verse 1, again, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus is talking about, obviously, how serious it is to cause someone to sin. Um, the, what the, the Bible here translates, temptation to sin that word means stumbling block, stumbling block. Uh, anyone who is a stumbling block, Jesus says, that's a serious thing. And then when he says, causes one of these little ones, little ones to sin, little ones to be stumbled, the little ones is likely referring to someone who's young or weak in their faith, uh, maybe immature in their, you know, in the early stages maybe of their relationship with Jesus. So someone who might be vulnerable to misleadings that would cause them to stumble in their pursuit of, of Christ. Like they're, they're trying to get close to Jesus, but then the little one can be easily stumbled. So Jesus is talking about how serious it is to be a stumbling block that gets in the way of someone really coming to know Jesus, coming to Jesus. It'd be better, he says, for that person to have a millstone tied around his neck and cast into the sea. That's how serious it is. Now, when I read this, I always thought Jesus was referring to people like the religious leaders of the time who, who misled people and often actually kept people from knowing Jesus. And we see that many times in the Gospels. But I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to here because verse 1 starts out saying, and he said to his disciples. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. He tells his disciples, temptation to sin are sure to come. But he's talking to his disciples, but don't be a stumbling block. And then he says, and then he says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. And I think that's important because why would he say, pay attention to yourselves? Why would he say that to his disciples unless he's warning his disciples not to be that stumbling block. After he says, pay attention to yourselves, he goes on to tell them what to do when someone sins against you. So I think these verses here are about not retaliating when someone wrongs you. Not retaliating and becoming a stumbling block that causes that initial offender to sin. So when someone wrongs you, Right? When someone wrongs you, you will be tempted to sin, but woe to you if you cause that initial wrong, if, like if you use that initial wrong as an excuse to retaliate, and then in that process, keep someone from coming to know me. I think that's what he's saying to his disciples. In verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. 
So pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to how you handle that situation when someone sins against you. If he sins, rebuke. If he repents, forgive. So in context of these verses, I think Jesus is saying, if your brother repents and you're unwilling to forgive, then you're a stumbling block that keeps that brother from knowing me. So the goal of this rebuke and forgiveness is redemptive. The goal is so that the brother is not kept from Jesus, but can actually know Jesus through my forgiveness. That's also why Jesus says in verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So, so I think Jesus is saying, whatever it takes, he's telling his disciples, do whatever it takes, pay whatever cost it costs to bring them to me. That's why not only forgive once, but always forgive. There's to be no limit to the number of times we forgive because the goal is to bring them to Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? Whatever it takes for Jesus meant giving his life on the cross. Jesus gave his life on the cross so that there can be forgiveness of sins and so that sinners can come to God. And it's that same paradigm that he's giving to his disciples. I mean, it's a high, difficult way to, uh, it's a different paradigm, it's a difficult way to live, right? But it's that same gospel paradigm that he's giving to his disciples. Do whatever it takes. Swallow your pride, pay whatever cost it costs to forgive even repeated offenses against you so that that person can see God. Knowing that when we forgive the sins done against us, that's the moment when we're most like Jesus, like Jesus on the cross. Now, this is obviously something that is very hard to do, to be that agent of repentance and restoration when someone sins against you. That's obviously something, you know, super hard to do because the tendency for us is to make it personal. You wronged me. So I want vindication, I want justice in that situation. And that's why, that's why following Jesus and to be a disciple of Jesus really requires a different life paradigm. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to, to, to teach his disciples. If my life value, right, if, if like what I, what I value in my heart, if my life value is to be treated properly, like I value those, those kinds of things, I value being treated properly. I, I value things being fair. Then in those, if that's what's in my heart, then there's no way I can forgive seven times a day, right? Like no end to forgiveness. I can't live like that. I can't live a life of forgiveness if what I value in my heart is, is just fairness because I'm always pursuing like how things should be because that's fair. If that's the paradigm that I'm living by, this is impossible to follow. But if my life goal is to bring people to Jesus, right? It's a different paradigm, different way to think, different way to live. If my life goal is to bring people to Jesus and that's my, my high value, and if I value being that agent 
of a brother's repentance and restoration to God. If that's what's in my heart, then when someone sins against me, then that moment becomes about bringing glory to God through forgiveness rather than seeking justice for myself. I was thinking, you know, that's very similar to what parenting is, right? Just this, this different paradigm has to exist in parenting. So, for example, like when your neighbor wrongs you, someone else, when you're, someone else wrongs you, you might get angry and the, the, the inclination might be to retaliate. But when your kid, your child wrongs you, you swallow it. You swallow it and you still love that child because you function by a different paradigm as a parent. Because your goal as a parent is to help him or her become a good person, to become a person of character, someone who loves God. That's why you absorb as a parent all the wrongs and still help them work through their issues. That's the difference between a parent from a child in the family. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. That's, that has, it's that kind of thing. It, it, that, that's what has to be different about the disciples of Jesus Christ from everyone else in this world. Forgive like God, because through that, as you forgive seven times a day with unlimited forgiveness, you're ultimately bringing people to Jesus. Forgive like God. Now, Jesus, again, is obviously telling them something that is not only difficult to do, but impossible to do uh, for sinners. Living a life of forgiveness is impossible for sinners and only possible with God. And I think that's why the disciples say now in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. And that's our second point. Believe in the greatness of God. The apostle said to the Lord, verse 5, increase our faith. So hearing what Jesus just said, right? Now, maybe the disciples are thinking about their own unfor unforgiving heart. They're maybe thinking about some of the deeply rooted things in their own hearts, like bitterness or resentment or the tendencies to be like that, that require faith to overcome. So they say, Lord, increase our faith. Now, Jesus hears that, and then his response to their request is very interesting. The Lord said, verse 6, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, what kind of response is this? Disciples just ask for greater faith, then Jesus should say, okay, I was hoping you would ask that, so here it is. Here's some more faith for you. Jesus, we want more faith. And Jesus basically says, if you have even a little, that's more than enough. Um, the mustard seed is really small. The mulberry tree is huge. The roots of a mulberry tree is hugely deep. So even a tiny bit of faith, Jesus says, can uproot the biggest mulberry tree, can, can uproot the biggest problem because... That's how great God is. You see, Jesus is directing their eyes away from themselves 
and turning them to God. I have so little faith. Jesus, I, have so, like, I need more faith. And to that, Jesus says, look how great God is. Believe how great God is, how mighty he is, how powerful he is. It's not so much about your amount of faith. It's about who God is. So believe that even impossible sins can be uprooted from your hearts. Believe that with your faith. Believe that because that's how great and powerful God is. That's what even the smallest faith can accomplish when placed upon the greatness of God. Um, you know, this summer I'm kind of working with one of our, our boys these days on his basketball game, um, particularly on his shooting. And uh, it's because he's kind of developed some bad shooting habits in the past, and we're trying to correct that. And we're working on it, right? Like physically going out there and, and trying to improve the shooting form and working on his shooting and things like that. We're trying to do that. But I think the bigger hurdle for him is in his head. Because he sees, for example, his brother shooting well, and he feels like, for some reason, he feels it's in his head. He feels like he can't achieve that. So when we practice and, and we're shooting, and I see him make six, seven, eight shots in a row with great shooting form, I make sure to point that out to him. I tell him, see, like I know, I know you can become a really good shooter because I've seen you do it. So I try to encourage him like that. And then, you know, for example, like the next day, we might go back and he might, you know, revert back to his old habits and then we work on it again. But I try to point out what he's doing well because I want to turn his thoughts away from what he can't do and turn his thoughts to what he can do. Turn his thoughts away from where he is now to where he can be if he puts in the work. And I think that principle applies just as well to us spiritually. We often don't try to change right? We often don't try to change or we give up so easily because we see so clearly how deeply rooted the sins are, those sins are in our hearts. And it feels like it's impossible. That mulberry tree is just too deep, too big. It feels like it's impossible, right? We don't feel like going to the gym and practicing. We don't feel like it's going to make a difference. We don't really believe that, that committing to morning prayer will really make a difference, we're too busy looking at the winds and the waves rather than looking at Jesus. And to that, Jesus says, don't focus on how bad you are. Think about how great God is. Jesus responds to his disciples who says, increase our faith. And he says, no, you actually have enough faith. Now, with that faith, believe in the greatness of God. And you can uproot anything because God is that great. Okay, so forgive like God, believe in the greatness of God, and then thirdly, serve for the glory of God. Serve for the glory of God. Verse 7, 
will any of you, now this, this topic seems to kind of shift to something totally different. Will any of you who has a servant plowing, keeping sheep says, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, recline a table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. So Jesus begins to now talk about the proper servant attitude that his disciples need to have. This man has a servant. I guess he's not, uh, he doesn't have multiple servants for different tasks, right? One for the field, another for the kitchen. And so he's just got one servant, like do it all servant, right? And so Jesus says, after that servant comes in from a full day of working out in the field, you're not going to say, oh, you poor servant, you work so hard. Oh, come here, now sit down and eat. You're not going to say that, oh, rest, you servant. No, instead you'll say, change your clothes and then prepare my dinner so I can eat. And that's because he's a servant. And especially if he's a hired servant, that's what he's being paid to do. That's what he's supposed to do. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Obviously, no, he's a servant. That's his identity. That's his job. So a servant must serve. You see, there's a huge difference between the mindset of a servant versus your average person who is not a servant. The normal mindset we have is, I did this, so I deserve this, right? That's just kind of common how it works, right? I did this, so whether it's like I, I did it for you, then I deserve something from you, I did this, or maybe from God, I did this, so I deserve this. But a servant does not think like that. A servant says, I did this, but I just, but I don't deserve anything because I'm a servant. No matter how much the servant is commanded to do, he just always serves because he's a servant. Um, we often run into problems in our own our Christian lives because we get that mindset mixed up. Right? Like we know that we're supposed to be servants, but we have the heart of a master. It's the opposite of Jesus, right? Who was really a master, but then he had the heart of a servant. We're the opposite. We're really servants, but we have the heart of a master. We want to be served rather than to serve. That's why when we serve, when we actually do things, right? Whether for God or for other people, whatever, when we actually serve after a certain point, there's always that point we begin to feel some resentment. I did all this, what do I get? Because we're really not servants. We're only acting like servants, right? Like we like being called servants in the church. We don't, we don't like being treated like one. And when we were treated like a servant for a long time, we, after a while, we're like, what's up with that? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? In verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Okay, so a real servant always serves. And Jesus now brings in this concept and applies it to his disciples. So you also must always have the attitude of a servant. You see, I think this is how the thread ties together. 
Jesus will soon send out his disciples to do his work. The disciples will be used by God to bring people to Jesus. They will accomplish seemingly impossible things, uprooting all kinds of trees by exercising faith in the great God. Knowing that, Jesus says, always remember that you are unworthy servants. Jesus is fully aware that it would be so easy for the disciples to take their eyes off of the, the, the grace of God, the power of God that enables them to do the impossible. Because it's our natural tendency to begin to think that, that we're worthy servants that deserves the credit for what we've accomplished. Right? Like we look back at all that we've been through and think, wow, look at all that I've been able to overcome. Look how great I am. And to that, Jesus says, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I'm only an unworthy servant. Only Jesus gets all the credit. Um, so, so I think in this passage, Jesus is really really speaking to his disciples, getting at the heart that they need to have. And in some ways, like giving them some very difficult teachings that will enable them to do what is humanly impossible for sinners apart from the grace of God. But at the same time, as they're being used by God for those purposes in their hearts, to give all the glory to, glory to God and really preparing the disciples, teaching the disciples so that they would have that right attitude, the, the, the servant's heart as they get prepared to go into this world to serve Jesus. Um, I was kind of thinking about this passage and I realized just, if you really think about this, just how difficult it is to be uh, Jesus' disciple. I mean, think about this, right? Just think about it. Someone wrongs you. Someone legitimately wrongs you. And uh, you can't even take that personally. You just got to put aside your personal feelings. And the, the, the disciple of Christ just thinks about bringing glory to God. Have to take your eyes off of yourself. Always keep it focused on God. Have to serve. And when you're done serving, you have to serve some more. Uh, serve with no expectations, giving all the glory to God. These impossible tasks that the disciples are called to do, somehow Jesus says, uh, in, the, in the grace of God, there is power, there is enabling grace. That somehow through that, God will use you to do these things and God will receive all the glory. Um, you know, I've been watching the, the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan documentary these days on Sunday nights, and it's called The Last Dance. And uh, it's a 10-part it's a documentary covering the final year of the Bulls championship dynasty from the, from the 90s. And uh, 
And it's really enjoyable for me to watch because, uh, you know, I'm a Bulls fan and, and I get to not only relive those years and be reminded of the glory years of the Chicago Bulls, but I'm really enjoying it. I get to watch it with my kids and talk about, talk about it and how things were and things like that. So really enjoying it, looking forward to Sunday nights. One thing that's really fascinating for me as I'm watching this is, is just seeing how much things have changed over the past 25 years. And the documentary talks about that, like how much the NBA has changed, the culture has changed, um, and then the context of society, how, how um, society has changed over the 25 years. The documentary talks about how Michael Jordan was a ruthless killer as a basketball player, how he drove his teammates, like harshly drove his teammates to become better so that the team can be ready, so that these players and the team can be ready for those moments when it counts in the championship run. And as I watch this, like, I'm really enjoying it because it's bringing me back to the, the culture of the 80s and 90s where the culture was so different. It was a time before social media when maybe you can even say that people could generally say what they were thinking without, at that time, worrying so much about being politically correct. Um, and again, it reminded me how much things have changed um, in our culture and how much even things have changed in the church today. Um, I grew up in a church culture, uh, perhaps, you know, for, for, diff for different reasons. Definitely the time of, uh, the times were different. And, uh, you know, obviously different churches are different depending on like Western culture, Eastern culture and things like that. But I grew up in a culture where generally, generally, Rebukes were welcome. It was seen as a blessing to have someone close to you in your life to constantly challenge you. That kind of time, maybe, that kind of culture. And it's just fascinating how much things have changed today, right? We live at a time, and you, you know this, we live in a time where really like, no one should offend us. We live in a time when we require people to be very careful and selective with their words. Um, it's like that in media. It's like that in generally in culture. And it's also like that in the church where, where we, we require people to be very selective with their words. And the slightest going off of course can have consequences. Oh, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you, you said that word that implied this. And uh, so I was thinking like, think about this text in the context of today. If Jesus is saying these things, really giving a, a harsh word to his disciples, basically saying these difficult things like you can't uh, take the wrongs against you personally. You got to put aside your personal feelings and, and then think about bringing glory to God because that's the paradigm of a disciple. 
Take your eyes off of yourself and focus on God. Serve and then don't expect anything after that. Continue to serve because that's what a servant is. I mean, how does Jesus say these things in the, um, in the church today? My guess is many people's response to Jesus in the church would be something like, wow, Jesus, I can't believe you made, I, Jesus, I can't believe you made me feel like that. Jesus, when you said that, I felt hurt. Jesus, how can you say that without first showing me that you love me? Jesus says, I do love you. But in this passage, you didn't say you love me. Uh, I think either, I think, the, I think the situation is this. So in the context of today, either someone, including Jesus, can never offend me or I have to have a different paradigm so that I'm less easily offended. I have to have a different paradigm where I identify myself as a servant that is living for the glory of God. I think Jesus comes against, through this passage, against many of the paradigms of this culture today. And he says to us, pay attention to yourselves. Um, it might be really difficult to really apply teachings like this into our lives if we're placing conditions and restrictions on even how God has to treat me as I proclaim that I'm identifying myself as a servant of God. Um, I think that's something for us to ponder over and um, I decided to do this. Um, so we don't have small group this week. So this coming week and then the week after that, for the sake of the students that are going through finals, we're going to take a two-week break from small group and then resume with small group uh, in three weeks. Um, so there's not going to be a small group discussion on this. So, um, but there will be a, a post-church service fellowship over Zoom right after, right, for whoever can make it. Uh, but if you'll also use that same link, um, totally optional, at uh, 7 o'clock today after dinner time. Uh, for anyone that wants to, I'll go on that link, and then if you want to talk about and digest this passage together with me, I will be there, and then we can have a uh, discussion and uh, think through this together because I think this is really hitting at something that even in our church, we need to think about as we you know, cultivate a mindset that enables us to really be faithful followers of Christ. Let's pray together. Just like in the New Testament time, Jesus is sending his disciples into this world, into a broken world, a world that is just as broken today as it was then, and says, I want you to go into this world and 
make visible the kingdom of God and to prepare his disciples. He says, you need to forgive. You need to forgive like God. Don't be that stumbling block that keeps these little ones from coming to me. But in the strength that I provide as you focus not on yourself and your limitations, but on the greatness of God and what he can accomplish through you, focus on that and do the impossible. Uproot the mulberry trees in your hearts and forgive like God. And always remember that as he uses you in incredible ways, that all the glory goes to God. Who am I but an unworthy servant simply doing what I'm commanded to do? Pray that we would really digest the word of God and go against every natural sinful inclination of our hearts and submit ourselves to the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we can think about um, these things through the teaching of your word. And we pray that It would be your spirit that ministers your word into our hearts. Help us to really believe that first we can change in the power of God. Help us to hope in your promises that it would be that desire that even um, gets us up out of bed in the morning uh, to commit ourselves to seek you in prayer, um, believing that the deepest trees can be uprooted in our hearts that you are in the process of making us into the disciples of Christ that you want us to be, to go for the championship run of bringing glory, victory, accomplish, uh, making visible the victory of Jesus Christ into this world. Thank you, Lord. Trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's pray. So, you know, we talked about, if you were at a Wednesday prayer meeting, we talked about, uh, in Philippians 2, um, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. And so just uh, that uh, biblical understanding that uh, God is doing it. God is accomplishing it. God is doing everything. Um, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like do the work of faith. So... I think both are there also in this passage. Like Jesus says, take your eyes off of yourself. It's not about what you do. Um, don't think about what you can't do. Think about the greatness of God. Don't think about just where you're at now, but think about uh, where God has taken you. Uh, and all of those things are real promises that we have in the Bible. And that's what we have to realize even as we um, seek to be servants and we seek to overcome the, and uproot the things in our hearts. Um, and uh, with that perspective, let's go to the Lord in prayer. With that perspective, let's commit ourselves to pray and seek God in his word. And through this uh, quarantine time, get better and love God more and learn to trust God more. So with that perspective, let's uh, uh, close our time together. Father, we thank you for your uh, overwhelming mercy grace in our lives. We thank you for the uh, supernatural strength and power that you promise and provide as your people turn to you in faith. Uh, no matter how seemingly discouraging the circumstances are, or even when we focus in ourselves, obviously uh, things are bad and um, 
you know, it's just uh, uh, very gloomy as we think about what we can't do. Uh, but we thank you for your word. We thank you for just even the impossible standards and goals that the scripture gives before us because it just means that we can glorify you that much it's actually impossible for us so really help us to have that perspective of faith uh, looking to you um, even going about um, finals the the mundaneness of work life these days and um and help us to really see that truth Monday morning as we even um, struggle to but commit to get out of bed to seek you. Thank you, Lord. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, his uh, incredible, unchanging covenant love, the love of the Father God, and the fellowship and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.